Welcome to the Athletic MBA Show, Monday through Friday on the Athletic Podcast Network. Coming up on today's show, we have two-time champion, two-time all-star, 15-year NBA veteran, David West, one of my favorite guys to talk to. We talk about Athletes Voices, a program where he's partnering with Harvard and Steve Kerr, the Warriors coach, and many other elite athletes to help athletes be educated and empowered when it comes to athlete activism. We also talk about his old Warriors days and the meningitis scare in March of 2018 that I wrote about a while back and that he has never opened up quite to this degree about and and the idea that it did almost rip the Warriors apart, that it was a very stressful time for them. David talks about that. He also dives into the NBA's problem with diversity and the idea that he thinks the coaching staff's front offices need to see more improvement when it comes to diversity, specifically, and he's been vocal on Twitter about this, his disapproval of the Knicks hiring of Tom Thibodeau and why coming up on the show. Beautiful game of basketball that we all love and talk about every single day. Sam at the center of an NBA investigation into tampering accusations. And the message to executive in the league is not talking about players on other teams. What did I do? The charges filed. Impermissible contact. Right or wrong. Tampering charges are really difficult to prove. You know me, I talk. <laughs> awkward to even talk about. I can't even mention teams anymore. That's what I like to play with Kevin Durant. The trial you want with tampering. They're always ahead of the rules. It's not rocket science. Hey, buddy, we don't have to tamper with the guys. I didn't tamper. I'm just telling you what happened. I'm just telling you what happened. Hello and welcome to the Athletic NBA Show. This is the Tampering Podcast. Sam Amick, NBA writer, here as always. I feel like I, I say this a lot, and, and this is, a, I guess, a good sign that we're doing okay on, on guests recently. We had Jamal Crawford on last week, and I described him as one of my favorites, and Stan Van Gundy the week before that. Uh, but but David West, uh, who was nice enough to join me today, is definitely on that list, a guy that, that uh, I haven't talked to, I think, in about a year, and, and a guy who all through the years was good to me in the media and the locker room. And, and uh, the fun part about watching uh, David, uh, you know, now that he's retired is, man, you're making, you know, so much noise and so much valuable impact off the floor. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into all of that with the 15-year NBA veteran, two-time All-Star, two-time world champion, D. West. How are you, my friend? I'm good, Sam. All's well this way. Thanks for having me, man. No, you got it. Of course. Uh, so so uh, we're going to start real quick just for, for fun on the personal side. We were catching up a little bit off the air and, uh, and you know, and, and before uh, knowing that we were going to speak, I had to go back and brush up on the latest that I remembered about things off the court for you personally. And, and so I'm like, all right, D. West has got the, the two little ones. And the last I knew you guys with your family were living in Oakland and there's been a, a few changes here, my friend. Why don't you inform the people of, of what your daily life is looking like right now? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, um, you know, we've got a one year old, uh, uh, we had a, what I call a retirement baby. Um, <laughs> and I was, I was, I was joking with one of my former coaches. I was like, you know, he got, he was conceived in the first summer in like, 25 years where I didn't have to prepare for basketball. So I was just sitting around and here he is. But um, it's been quite an experience uh, because, you know, while I was in the NBA, I had we had two children while I was in the league. And, you know, because of the schedule in the NBA, you're not able to, you know, I missed, I think I missed a couple, a couple days with, with the birth of, of both kids. But then immediately you sort of get back into traveling and playing games. So I wasn't necessarily there all the time throughout that first year of life. But 
with this one, it's um, it's an everyday, every night thing. Uh, it's quite an experience. Uh, from the <laughs> I mean, that, that contrast has got to be wild because certainly the part I can relate to, you know, we've got two sons and, and you know, I can relate to the, the diaper and duty and everything that comes with having a little one. But that before and after of being an athlete and, and being on the go, you know, media wise, we're on the go, but it's not to the degree that you guys are. Um you know, that, that part's got to be something else. But is everybody uh, everybody happy and healthy and hanging in during this this brutal year right now? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We've, um, you know, the kids have been really helpful with their baby brother. We've, again, like I said, I've been in um, changing diapers in the middle of the night and putting the baby to bed, which is stuff that I really didn't get a whole lot of opportunities to do with the other two. So it's sure. been in quite a different experience, but, um, it's, it's made us closer. Um, you know, again, it's, we're adjusting just like everyone else is adjusting during these times. No doubt. I mean, the little slice of life on my side where I can relate is, is, you know, in the media side, we've been talking among colleagues a lot recently about all of us who are used to going to arenas and, and it's similar where, where we get out, right. And we right, get a little right. bit of a breather family wise this morning to share a little story with you. I'm getting ready for the pod and my normal routine would be like, all right, let's talk at roughly 10 a.m. Pacific time. Let me spend a couple hours reading up and reminding myself where I might want to go. Well, meanwhile, 11 year old woke up today and he just decided that, that he wasn't really feeling the idea that he had to do any reading today or do anything <laughs> other than than play some video games and hang out. And so I, I had myself a little fatherhood moment like you got to be kidding me. I'm trying to work here like mom. What are we doing? You know, so it's. <laughs> It's hard to have all this stuff in the same space. Um, listen, is. we we would have you, I would have you on any day of the week, regardless. But um, to let people know what we're going to spend a good amount of the uh, the show talking about this week, um, you're part of a group that is uh, called Athletes Voices, where you are partnering with Harvard and and a, uh, you know a ton of elite, uh, incredible athletes to essentially. I'm going to paraphrase it rather than break down the entire press release that I have in front of me. But um, where this hit me was that it essentially is a, an extremely high level um, programming to help empower athletes to learn how to best use their voices when it comes to things like social justice issues and Black Lives Matter and anything else that they care about, but to do so with a support system in place, everything from, you know, interns at your disposal, educators, um, you know, that, that you can partner with. Some of the other right. names on the list. So Steve Kerr, your buddy from your Warriors days, is uh, a major part of this. Um, you have Professor Sven Beckert from Harvard. Um, yeah. The other athletes, you have boxing legend Leila Ali, one and only Pau Gasol, uh, Vander Kane, the, the San Jose Sharks forward. Uh, and pardon me, listeners, as I just make it through here. Um, national ice hockey forward and Olympic gold medalist from the U.S., Hillary Knight, U.S. Olympic, uh, Olympic fencing medalist, uh, Abijah Muhammad, eight-year yeah. NFL veteran, Tory Smith, and uh, and some other names in there too. But tell me about this because it's in Orlando right now, as as you and I speak. You know, more than ever, the the Black Lives Matter conversation is not only on center stage, but but it, it's there because the players decided to put it there, and that right. falls right in line with what you guys are trying to advance here. Right. Yeah. It's it's um it's really neat. Um, you know, Joanne brought it to me about. Three months ago, she she had this idea and she's just trying to figure out how to connect the right athletes with the right educators to create this sort of massive group of folks that could help um, 
you know, bring awareness to issues, but also um, to align. So there's, again, certain issues that I might be passionate about, but you need the reinforcement of, you know, people, the educators who are doing um, the literary work and doing things um, in academia um, that are making it possible for this information to be uh, dispersed throughout, you know, the society and the population. And so um, I'm happy to be a part of it. Um, you know, we had our a big powwow over Zoom last week and right. uh, it was a very, very powerful group, tons of people. Um, and it's it was good to hear, um, you know, the voices of people again that I, I'm unfamiliar with um, in different areas of the world, uh, not just the world, but in areas of entertainment and the arts and society, but really focused on figuring out a way um, to communicate and to make a connection uh, and also to, 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 to develop sort of a better understanding of where we are as a society. I mean, that was what um, what drew me to it. Um, and Joanne and I have had these conversations in the past, uh, but it was really um, just more to fill about, in. Sorry, D West, to fill in the gap there. That's Joanne Pasternak, the other Pasternak, president. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's OK. Yeah, yeah. President, chief impact officer of, of Oliver Rose. Right. Right. Yep. And the the idea, again, is to, you know, be able to amplify athletes voices and use some of the data that's coming out about the impact that athletes voices can have um, on younger generations of people, on people who are not necessarily, um, you know, fans of basketball, but may um, be open to um, listening to some different perspectives that they don't necessarily always hear. Um, and that's what I guess the the purpose of the entire group is right is to continue to figure out um, how we move the society forward and combine the impact that athletes have. And now, as a as a as a retired athlete, um, you know I'm one of the members of the athletic council. So you know we're gonna try to help put together sort of the context to help athletes that come that continue to come through the pipeline, um, help them continue to shape their voices. Um, because you know, this generation of athletes, they want to have an impact, right? They want to have a voice. I know you, you're seeing it. Um, and I know you've seen it and can talk about what you've seen in terms of the evolution of, of the league, right? Over the last 15, 20 years with these guys and, um, guys want to be more impactful, want to have their voice heard. Um, this is just a way to continue to help them in those conversations. No, it's all well said. I mean, I wanted to share um, a, a quick quote that's from that press release because I thought it hit it on the head. And it was from the Harvard professor, Stephen Levitsky. So he says, athletes speak with a lot of authority in the yeah. polarized country we've become uh, that we've become. There are very few public figures left who can cross partisan lines and speak to all Americans. Uh, athletes still have that crossover appeal. Right. And they're especially well positioned to talk about race and speak effectively to young people. That, you know, it's not that I didn't already realize that, but but the specific point about the, you know, the ability to cut through the, the politics. And I know, yeah. listen, if, if folks who are listening don't agree with that athlete's view, it's going to very quickly be perceived as political. And that is what it is. But the thing I love about this, and, and I want to pivot a little bit and, and focus on Orlando, is okay. that the, the timing couldn't be better, I think, for you guys to do this. Because what I have feared at different times is that, you know, guys speaking out is fantastic, but every once in a while, and I, I'm curious if you agree, we see situations where a guy will be taking pride in speaking out, but then a particular topic will cross his desk 
that he's not necessarily equipped to take on. And, right. and, right. and that's where, you know, I think even in Orlando right now, I mean, some of the, like Jeremy Grant of the Nuggets, I thought was, was really savvy with the way he handled his press conference a couple of weeks ago now where he just wanted to talk about Brianna Taylor. And, and, and so that has a, I think an impact and that really landed. Then you have other situations. I mean, if you go back to, I guess it was October, um, you know, LeBron, who's become, you know, the best guy on this front when it comes to, to really tackling a lot of issues, had a tough moment where he, I don't think he was ready to take on the China Hong Kong storyline based right. on, you know, so you see that stuff. And I'm sure if, if, if I'm in your shoes, the goal is to, um, just maximize the impact and, and kind of help guys educate themselves along the way so that when they grab that microphone, they're kind of ready to rock and speak their voice. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, and that's, and that's really uh, what about, and it's about being able to help um, the players that want to be use that platform and want to use their voices. It's about making sure that they have all the information um, and all of the support that they need, uh, but also give them the, 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 the comfort level, right. And the confidence to continue to magnify their voices because again, um, uh, you know, athletes are in a, a very, very, different environment right we've we've throughout our life know how to win we know how to lose um and again if you look at most locker rooms right most athletic locker rooms particularly in basketball um are are diverse right there are multiple voices in locker rooms and there are multiple uh, ethnic backgrounds that are represented in locker rooms and the the basketball environment in particular and in sporting arenas in particular um is where people say, okay, people tend to overlook or look by certain things if it's coming from an athlete. And so, they, I mean, we were on the call. They had a bunch, there's a bunch of data that supports information. Um, I, at one time, I was having conversations with an educator in Oakland about, you know, we were testing out certain things. You know, she, she would say something on Monday to her class. And I may have mentioned this to you before. She'd say something on Monday to her class. The kids don't respond. But if she came in on Tuesday and said, Steph Curry said, all of a sudden right. it became God's right. golden water. You know what right. I mean? So yep, yep, yep. that's, that's sort of the, 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 the message here, right? It's putting these athletes in a position to really speak about things that are impacting our society. Um, the professors that are, that are leading this thing are some brilliant, some brilliant, brilliant people. And um, they are really trying, they are really trying to make this connection because there's a connection that academia wants to make with these athletic voices to make sure that these guys who have these massive, massive platforms can get messaging out that is clear, that's coherent, but is also constructive and helps, you know, continue to move this society forward. All of sure. the energy, all of the energy that's happening right now in, in, in the NBA and guys wanting to use their platform, it's the right thing for them to do. Uh, it's the right thing for them to speak out. Again, like you said, we just want you know guys to be as informed as they possibly can about the issues that they care about. Sports are back. Man, I've been waiting months to say that during these pandemic times. Now, as an NBA writer, I know this is a fact because I'm watching games remotely inside the Orlando bubble. I'm reading our guy, Joe Varden, who is inside the bubble on all the ins and outs of the NBA action. I'm watching LeBron James cut through the defense to slam it on the break like he has been for almost 20 years now. I'm watching Giannis Antetokounmpo dominate like he always does. But all across the sporting landscape, sports are back. And here at The Athletic, in my humble opinion, our coverage is 
is better than ever. If you're not with us just yet, we have a deal that you got to jump on 40% off an annual subscription. Don't miss the exclusive in-depth coverage of this unprecedented sports season. Subscribe now and save. Sign up to see for yourself the creativity, the reporting, the storytelling that sets The Athletic apart. You just got to go to theathletic.com slash NBA show and get 40% off an annual subscription. Sports are back. You do not want to miss the breaking stories on your favorite teams. Again, theathletic.com slash NBA show for 40% off that annual subscription. We hope to see you there. So as a guy who, yes, you're retired, but but you're still closely tied to the league and have all these relationships and you're active on this front, uh, I was dying to know if we could hit the rewind button and go back to a few months back, you know, I guess April, May, when the league was trying to figure out what to do regarding the, the shutdown, what to do regarding the mm-hmm. virus. And then eventually that conversation turns to players themselves uh, and, and the question of, is it the right thing to do to go play in Orlando? Uh, during a time when there there was right. this incredible upswelling of of kind of you know progress on the Black Lives Matter movement and the idea that people were paying attention partly because there was nothing else to pay attention to and sports right. as much as we love them can be a diversion they can be a distraction and you know where did you land on that as that conversation evolved and, and players tried to figure out what the right thing to do here was um, well I, you know I was more concerned with. The optics of it, one, the health considerations, two, and then the distraction piece was like my last thing. I thought optically, um, particularly when they started having the conversations and people were, were rightfully upset, like it just felt like they were trying to shift the shift the attention away. Um, then, you know, you get the sentiment of, you know, players that want to play, you know, guys saying they want to go down there. They want to finish the season, um, which I understand um, as well. Um, but my 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 only thing and I get I had a bunch of different private conversations. But what I was what I was adamant about was that, you know, the only wrong thing in this time to do was was to be silent. Like I felt like that was the worst sin that anyone could commit. Right. It was just being acting as if nothing was going on, acting as if we were going to just jump right back into sort of what things were. Um, and we've seen people right from both sides sort of dismiss, you know, the dynamics of this pandemic. We've seen people, uh, you know, dismiss, you know, the, the actual efforts of, of Black Lives Matter as a statement. Um, um, and I just thought that if anybody could handle all of that, you know, Adam would be the guy that could figure it out. And, you know, I know they had some back and forths with the with players and things aren't necessarily still settled. I mean, some players still have some grievances about, you know, what they're, what, what, what's going on. But again, the platform that the players have um, with the NBA, if guys continue to use it to amplify these messages and bring attention to issues that are really um, impact impacting our society. um, I don't think that, you know, that's a wrong use of their platform. Where do you see to whatever degree you can share as always, where do you, where might some of these grievances lie in terms of players, maybe not loving the the execution here in terms of how it's happening out there? You know, I think obviously the first thing is, is the idea of being locked, you know, kind of locked away, even though they've turned it into, I think I saw somebody refer to it as a a real live 2k, uh, uh, video game. Like it's basically, they're living inside a video game. Um, but some, you know, some guys have just, you know, have a, have an issue with that, like the idea of just sort of being locked away from everyone, right? Being, you know, having family access and stuff like that restricted. Um, 
Um, I don't think guys have objected to the, you know, the play and the environment. It's just more of the, like I said, the optics don't necessarily look the best when you talk, when you think about, you know, having this large, largely group of, of black athletes sort of in, confined in one place, right? Um, you know, out entertaining and giving people something to, to, to watch during a time where, you know, we really should be mostly focused on, you know, getting our society healthy, like literate, literally and figuratively. Right. No, I mean, that's the thing. We got viruses of, of many kinds right now. Oh, man. Right, right. It's it, it's wild for me. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, you know, even when I see Black Lives Matter on the court, it's the type of thing where you shake your head and go, man, I never thought I'd see that. You know, and right, and, right. and even I mean, on the baseball side, I was stunned when I mean, the NBA players didn't even have, you know, games up and rolling yet. And the baseball guys, some of them are, are kneeling during the national anthem. And, right, and so right. you see, you know, the direction where things are going uh, on that specific front. And I actually wrote about this a few days ago. What do you anticipate uh, when it comes to what's going to happen next out there, whether it's an anthem kneeling situation, whether it's other efforts, you know, where do you think, uh, you know, the, the impact is going to be made? Well, I just think that guys are going to continue, you know, aside from, for, you know, because a lot, you know, the kneeling and the, I think the WNBA, uh, uh, those players, they walked off, they walked off. Some I saw, I think I saw a team of girls walk off. Um, it, You know, it's, it's, uh, those are symbols. I think what the more fruitful things that are coming out of this are players are are really forming alliances with grassroots organizations. Um, players are starting to think about um, being more evolved as people, but then also being more involved in um, some of these community issues that have been overlooked. You know, I've always felt like this, and I've, I said this before I left the league. You know, one of the biggest changes I saw was how connected players became to information because of the cell phone. Right. So you get on the bus, you know, you, you finish a game uh, and you're on the bus headed to the airport at 11 o'clock at night. And every single guy is on his cell phone. Every single seat has a guy down in his headphone, down in his phone, whether he's going through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it is. Um, and they're processing information right we you know guys are looking at reports and stuff at halftime in the locker rooms right like you go and pick up your phone and see what people are commenting how you played in the first half i mean and i experienced that with the warriors i was like what are you guys looking at and it would be like yo we're i'm like wow like i hadn't even thought about it and i the guys with the warriors were so in tune with it and you know, I you know I think Clay would use it sometimes as as fuel to the fire. Somebody's like, "Yo, Clay's having a bad game," and he comes out in the third quarter, and you know, it was something that um, something that I don't think that people anticipated having an impact. So what you have now is you have guys consuming information and getting information on their own time, and it's led guys to feel like they have to use their platforms for more constructive purposes, and so. I think that's what we're, where we're going to. I think that's just a natural effect of a society with so many issues um, and players who are now connected more than ever to the information and things going on in society. Because, again, we don't have to wait for the Sunday paper. Right. It's literally breaking news every moment of the day. Right. No, absolutely. Where for you, D. West, and I've never asked you this before, help people understand who you are and who you became as a person on this front, because you talk about sports being an entertainment. Okay. We know the guy, 
you know, who's built like a mountain who can, you know, kick everybody's ass and have a 15 year career and, and be a two time all-star. And we know the athletic exploits, um, you know, beyond that, we don't often get much deeper than, okay, grew up in North Carolina, you know, ends up playing at Xavier. Um, right. but, but you like everybody else had formative moments in your life that, that, you know, shaped you right. and on specifically, you know, specifically on this front, I would love to hear more about, you know, the different moments that did change you and, and the ones that, that made you passionate about this uh, and the ones that kind of left the kind of mark that, that, that leaves you wanting to, to, you know, change the things the way you are. Right. Well, it's, um, you know, for me, it was, uh, like we, you know, we, I had a wake up moment. I was eight years old. It was a, it was a, a police officer involved shooting, um, up the street from my house on my block uh, in Teaneck, New Jersey. And I was eight. Um, a police officer shot a guy in the back while he was fleeing, you know, and everything that you see now that happens when you have these police shootings happened in our town. And that was my first sort of introduction to it. That's when my mom started having these, you know, what we call little black boy talks. Um, and that was one of the f moments in my life as a young child that life was no longer just fun and games. Um, it, it became serious and right. the, the neighborhood was talking, you know, all of a sudden we couldn't just run out of the house like we wanted to, um, couldn't, uh, you know, and literally it changed. Life just changed. And um, again, I was still only eight, so I still had mature, maturing to do. And, you know, basketball obviously became an intricate part of who I was. But did you know um, the... Uh... Just, the, the the man who was shot? Yeah, Philip. Yeah, yeah. Philip Purnell absolutely knew Philip, man. Philip was a neighborhood kid, um, was around. He lived between Ingwood and Teaneck. Um, uh, and I lived, my house was literally on the border of Teaneck and Inglewood. So most people that came out of Inglewood, particularly if you were walking, you came right past our corner, right, right past our street. And then we had a very uh, a famous park called Tryon Park where people would come and play pickup always busy, particularly in the summertime. So, um, uh, or when it got warm in Northern New Jersey, but you know, we, we, uh, you know, I had experiences, you know, we had, my dad had me, uh, marching. And then I think we marched on the board of education some years after that. And I, again, I'm still not understanding totally. I'm just getting bits and pieces. I know that, you know, that there are other issues going on in society. And even though I can't quite understand them, um, there was a recognition that they were there. Uh, I moved to the South, which was a cultural shock, um, simply because the South was actually more integrated than the living conditions that I had in the North. Uh, and so that was a, a different switch. And then when did you, know, you guys went, go from Jersey to, to the South? Uh, I went from Jersey to North Carolina in 96 okay. um, and finished two years of high school in North Carolina. And then I had a year of military school um, uh, at Hargrave Military, which was a, a eye opener just in terms of discipline, but also just more awareness about historical realities. I had a, a, a history professor there, Colonel Sands, who's uh, since passed, but he left a major uh, mark on me just because he challenged, he forced me to challenge a lot of what I was romanticizing about you know, uh, American history and what America actually was. And from there, I went on to uh, liberal arts school at Xavier in Ohio. And that was just, um, 
you know, you're meeting, you know, activist nuns and, um, you know, priests who have been on hunger strikes and, um, um, you know, there was a nun, Sister Roseanne Fleming, who was basically doing uh, pro bono uh, defensive work uh, down for all of the people, you know, inner city people in Cincinnati who couldn't afford legal representation. She was um, doing it. So I started learning about like the things, different acts that people were doing. Um, and then my sophomore year, there was a police shooting in Cincinnati. Um that again sort of brought back all of these memories and even if if i had some uh some nostalgia about you know and i was sort of fantasizing about what the world was growing into and this sort of brought me back down to earth um and then you know it's just it was incidents like that that you know just continued to make the world a little bit more real for me um we were real active around cincinnati with that i from that point, I remember I specifically, you know, got introduced to speaking to, you know, juveniles and youth offender programs. I was like 20 years old or something um, and started that work where people would say, hey, man, you think it'd be smart to come, you know, just have me visit with a group of, you know, at risk, you, you know, kids who already had, you know, stuff on their record or whatever. Um, so I just got started that way. I started visiting um, juvenile, the actual juvenile facilities in while I was in school as a part of a program. Um, so I went uh, part of a, a program I was in, uh, went to the juvenile centers and then also worked with young kids at a battered women's shelter. Um, uh, because we don't realize that battered women, a lot of the people that are at the most adversely affected outside of the women are the, their children. Right. So when a mom flees an abusive relationship and she has to go to a battered women's shelter, oftentimes she shows up with her kids. And so, um, you know, while I was in school, this was like my last my, my junior year, my senior year. Um, I was working with the battered women's shelter as a part of a program at Xavier, too. And I was just talking and counseling the younger children, the younger males, particularly the younger black males. Um, and then, you know, I just and then all of that, I was just doing the basketball thing. Um, and then the NBA popped up and I didn't feel like changing, to be honest with you. When I got to the NBA. I was like, yeah, I'm not changing. I mean, I got all the way this doing it like this. I'm not, right. I'm not going to change. And so that's pretty much it. And so when I got in the league, it was a lot of the same, um, you know, visiting juvenile centers, um, you know, working with at-risk young people, offering my, you know, services. And I think in all of my 15 years, I think maybe I had one reporter follow me into a juvenile center on purpose. I mean, it was when I was with Indy, um, but it was just something that I like to do personally. And it wasn't, you know, I couldn't get credit for doing it with my, um, you know, the NBA appearance and stuff, which was fine because it wasn't a part of that work. Okay. Um, you know what I mean? But yeah. Um, uh, that's where it comes from, man. And just wanting to be connected to the larger body of, of people, you know, speaking about the NBA bubble, if we talk about you know, the NBA is always a bubble, right? You know, right? the NBA is literally a bubble. You live in this world, even when uh, before the physical bubble in Orlando, the NBA itself, the NBA world is a bubble, right? Sort of the arenas on the bus, the airplanes, uh, the hotels, the arenas, that constant. And you're really not, you know, in, in a normal season, you're really not exposed to a lot of the outside world, right? Your schedule just doesn't allow it. So I was always one of those people that, you know, wanted to, wanted to make sure I was clear about what life was like 
outside of the NBA bubble. And as I got older, um, you know, we start hearing stories about how hard it is to adjust to life after the NBA. Um, because again, you don't, you're not, if you're not in that NBA bubble, you don't necessarily feel like you have a purpose. And I never wanted to be, be one of those guys. I always made it a point to, to be informed, always made it a point to stay connected, uh, and figure out ways that I could have an impact, um, whether it's in my personal life, um, or, you know, in my public life. The final 22 NBA teams have made their way down to Orlando and are back out on the court. While the ending to this year's basketball season will be different than years past, there will be no shortage of excitement and there's no better place to get in on all the action than with DraftKings, a leader in one-day fantasy sports. To celebrate the return of basketball, DraftKings will have not one, but two $1 million top prizes through the first two days of the resumed season. So get in on all the action now. If you haven't tried it yet, fantasy basketball is easy to play. Play. Just pick eight players, stay under the salary cap, pile up points for three-pointers, rebounds, assists, and more. There's no better way to put your basketball knowledge to the test than to compete for a shot at $1 million. But if basketball isn't for you, don't worry. DraftKings is offering plenty of fantasy golf action for this week's tournament. With millions of dollars up for grabs this week, there is no better place to have skin in the game than with DraftKings. Download the DraftKings app now and use the promo code Run, R-U-N, to get a free shot at millions of dollars up for grabs this week with your first deposit. That's promo code RUN to get a free shot at millions of dollars with your first deposit only at DraftKings. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. One of the uh, the, the chapters in there that, that I had, I was definitely curious to kind of drill down on is you and CP, Chris Paul in New Orleans, you spent six seasons together. And, you know, I covered, uh, during that time, I was actually covering the Kings only as their beat writer out in Sacramento. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, w- I saw what y'all were doing and I would cover those games four times a year when you played the Kings. And uh, But at that time, you know, Chris is a kid coming up and then you're the guy who's a little bit older and, and right. you guys had a great thing going. But, but you know, to see now the way that both of you have shaped your voices and knowing back then how close you were, I wondered what impact do you feel like the two of you had on each other during that stretch? Because basketball wise, we always focus on, okay, if I have this right from memory, you know, you decided to go to Indy. That's right about the same time that they end up shipping Chris out to the Clippers. Um, and the rest is history basketball wise, but but you guys, if I have memory serves, you guys were tight and now seeing how, you know, impactful you guys are on this front, you know, how did that relationship change you at all? Yeah. Well, you know, um, when we were in new Orleans, man, we, because I, I was in new Orleans pre Katrina. So a couple of years before Chris, and then we drafted Chris and he never got, he didn't come right to new Orleans. He went to OKC for two years. And, um, you know, I remember the new Orleans and we had, there was a school, we, we went into a school one time and I don't remember the school, but we went into the school and they specifically brought me in. They said, we want you to talk to the kids because they're, they're, they're going to take these tests that are going to basically decide whether or not they go to the next grade or not. And I walked into school and I remember the cafeteria floor was dirt. And, um, this was pre Katrina. And I remember saying to myself, how could they even possibly prepare right. for 
anything in this kind of environment. And I think I remember I think the Hornets, we immediately addressed that issue, got them a new cafeteria floor, all that stuff, and actually did some work with getting them updated books. Um, but I remember, you know, more specifically that that general feeling was around just about every player that was with the organization at that time. And then Katrina hit. Um, and then it was sort of everybody was active in support. So we were putting money together. We had uh, a woman working with our organization at the time, Suzanne Weirdan, and she had a foundation she was working with. And we were literally, you know, funding these um, these feed the children trucks for full of stuff. Um, we were distributing them in uh, like Mississippi. We went and took stuff into Baton Rouge before we could actually get back into New Orleans itself. Um, then when we returned to New Orleans, um, you know, we were just doing a lot of stuff. Once we realized like, OK, there was stuff that needed to be done beyond just the NBA care stuff. Um, and we realized the type of impact we could have personally. I think that's where it really sort of. Uh, for both of us um, synergized because I think Chris started doing, he was doing Thanksgiving giveaways and then we did one together. We were doing holiday stuff. We were taking kids through um, to get toys. We were doing books. We were doing, um, uh, what was it, uh, Catholic charities work. We were doing the, 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 the rebuild, we were helping rebuild certain parts and making sure we were doing, um, sending, um, services to the, to the remote parts, like down in Plaquemines Paris and things like that, that weren't necessarily like the ninth ward was getting all of the attention. Cause that's where the levees broke, but right. there were all the, the downspout, right. Of where the damage was. So there was so much work, um, being done. And we realized like personally, we could just do stuff. Um, and, um, I just, I don't know if it's a, it's a combination of our families, our parents, um, but, you know, we did some stuff together and, you know, it's good to see that, you know, Chris has continued to, to evolve and continue to, to, to use who he is, um, and his platform to have a massive impact. So, you know, we didn't necessarily look at each other one day and say, Hey, we're going to do this. It was just like, I remember he called me one time was like, Hey D man. Uh, we're going to do was some kind of uh, uh, food giveaway. And it wasn't for a holiday. It was just, hey, man, like we found a section of of New Orleans or this, this section of of the community that literally needs they need some help. They need, and we just did it. Um, you know, so it wasn't and it wasn't at that time. I don't know if Twitter was even around. It might have just started. So we didn't have the social media platform still or yet. So uh, a lot of it was just feeling like this was the right thing. These were the right things to do. Um, you know, that that's really what it, what it came down to. Do you guys, you know, in, in, in 2020, and is there a through line when it comes to that relationship and, and kind of your ability to, to stay tied to this current group? I and mean, do you still talk to Chris about these issues? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We, um, we have had some good conversations over these last couple of months. Um, you know, just, and I've tried to just, you know, counsel him in his leadership role and not just him, not him, a, a few other guys, just again, making sure that, you know, they know their support coming from a lot of different, a lot of different spaces and that there are a lot of different voices that, um, 
uh, are going to stand with the guys and stand with the the things that they feel are important. And then again, I you know I like to use the fact that there there are guys, there are people that we may didn't expect, we maybe didn't expect to have a voice, but are going to use it and want to use it um, um, to amplify some of these issues. You know, because as as people mature, men mature, you you have children, you have families, you start to look at the world differently. Um, and I think that plays a part in some of the evolution that you see happening with some of these players. Anybody come to mind for you on that front? I mean, I, I'm, I'm imagining you kind of watching social media, watching these games, and you might see a young fella that, that you didn't necessarily know that he had a lot of substance to him, and then you, maybe you see him say something that, that lands, and, and, and then all of a sudden he's on your radar. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I mean Jalen Brown is a guy. Um, sure. Malcolm Brogdon, I mean, I didn't know. I don't, I don't know them, um, but I've been really um, – I guess impressed might be the, word, the, the the wrong word to use, but I've really been, you know, sort of t- taken back by some of the things that Jalen has, has um, you know, he's, he's put on his social media. Um, we know some of the same people I just found out. Um, so now it makes a little bit more sense, but um, he's one, and he's a young guy, man. He's a young, young star in the league, but he's, he's going to use his platform um, um, for the right reasons. And I think that's, um, that's a positive, right? That's something that I don't know when I first came in the league, I don't remember many young players. And when I came in the league, people were still talking about that. You're going to lose opportunities if you say the wrong thing type of right. stuff. And, right. Um, uh, these young guys just aren't built that way. Um, you know, Malcolm Brogdon is a polished, he's a polished kid. Um, um, again, somebody that I'm unfamiliar with, but um, I've been impressed with through this. Yeah, I mean, you and Jalen got those some of those Bay Area roots, right? Because I know he right. studied at Cal, so I'm sure you right. have a lot of the same circle. Right. Good stuff, man. Hey, uh, before we get you out of here, we, we know we got to talk some hoops. Um, and every time you and I connect, again, I'm, you know, because I haven't seen you in person in a minute, and last time I did, you still look like the same dude. I mean, are you, you joked last time we talked about not hitting the weight room, not staying on top of things. Like, are you still yeah. the dude that we know, or are you you falling yeah. off into old man uh, dad body here? What uh, do we got? Uh, I stopped. I stopped. I stopped the. Uh, I stopped the decline about six months ago. I, <laughs> I got back. I'm getting myself back into into good shape. Uh, about 245 pounds. So. That's a good a good function <laughs> for me. Um, you know, I'm not eating like I was. I've cut out the sweets. I mean, I really I'm telling you, man, after being in the NBA and just having to just be so meticulous about everything, right? Like you can't have a drink at this time of day or night and you can't eat cake and can't. So I just I gave myself a full man to hell with it. I went <laughs> I was eating what I wanted. Drinking what I wanted, when I wanted, um, for real, man. Because I just and I was telling, yeah. I was telling a, a former player the other day. I said the hardest thing is like, or the 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 greatest thing for me not being in the league is not watching my phone. Like you're constantly watching your phone for the next scheduled event, the next time you got to be at practice, the next wake up nap time. So not having that. Um, and then having the freedom to, to really, you know, to eat. And I did, I didn't do bad, but I wasn't the greatest, you know, and I, so two forty five uh, now, like what's the ceiling? How, how, how did we go here? I'm putting, no, I, didn't, I, yeah. I, I didn't get, I didn't get bad. I, it was more or less being in the, being a slop in the sloppy two fifties, yeah. you know, like being in the upper two fifties and sloppy, 
Um, I had to cut that out. And then my wife looked at me one one time like, boy, you need to check that stomach. And I was like, <laughs> that's all you need to hear right there. That's a, yeah. yeah that's a, <laughs> so could you could you go to Orlando right now and, and, and give a team 15 minutes? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. That, that there's no question. I, I there's no question. I, I see that. I was watching one of the games the other day, and I was like, man. <laughs> all right, okay. We'll, we'll just leave it at that. I mean, again, when we talked before, you weren't missing it yet. But I mean, does that change where you at now in terms of the just that relationship you have with the game? No, I mean, you know, I actually. So I, I got back in the gym. Um, you know, I'm always working with the young athletes, and that's really giving me my fix. Um, you know, there's gonna be. Uh, there's a there's a, a quite a few um, a pros that live in this area back in this in this North Carolina area. So when maybe a few of those guys come back, I may play a little pickup with them um, when things you know when they start getting prepped for next year, next season. So that's that's really about it. I've got no desire to get back into any kind of structured basketball schedule because I just again I enjoy the freedom of sort of. Sure. Not having to constantly look and wait for that text. All right, we got to be on the bus at this time, the shoot arounds at this time. Right. I don't miss that at all. Yeah. It's funny, man, to hear you kind of joke about having a drink whenever you want. You gave me a flashback. You gave me a flashback to one of my favorite moments on the job. And I forget which year it was, but like, you know, one of your two championships, us going to talk to you in the locker room. And by the time we got to you, you had you had the drink flowing and I got to see the D West, you know, in, right. in his in his happy place. <laughs> right. But again, man, I hadn't had a drink in three months because I was so right. You know, I was so nervous about winning the championship. Like, you know, it was like, man, we just got it. I got to do this. Like, we got to win. We cannot lose this right. thing. Right. Right. And. Yeah, so that was a time to just let let go. But man, I mean, it's it's a reality that a lot of guys face, and you don't realize the amount of pressure, right? That it's just to maintain and maintain and be on time and and never be you know never be off center, never caught off guard, um, which is something that I sort of prided myself on. So having the opportunity to just be like, oh, yeah, you know, to just exhale and. It felt really good, man, you know? It makes sense. The The other thought I had there that that almost in a way ties to, the, you know, here and the now is you make the, the infamous comment about how after the championship that folks didn't realize how hard it was. You know, you for six months you got folks wondering what you're talking about. You and I end up circling back. And I know, and, and, you know, you don't have to go down this road, but, like, eventually I end up writing about – that meningitis scare that you guys had that we didn't know about at the time. And it's crazy. I I pulled that story up today and I'm thinking to myself like, geez, this was essentially like, I believe a seven to 10 day period where this one team had concern about a virus that was dangerous. Right. And next thing you know, you're having to move the team. The Warriors have to come out of the practice facility. Um, You know, I think, did you guys, you didn't practice in Santa Cruz, did you? No, 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 no. We at the arena. At the arena. Okay, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. So you got to move, and then and you got a, a sanitizing team back at the facility doing their thing. And so even in a vacuum, that was dramatic. It was stressful. And, again, we didn't know about it at the time. And it's right. just it's crazy to think, okay, now take that and multiply it by a 1,000, and, and, and that's what's happening right now. Right now, right. Yeah, it's, it's, it, there are a lot of similarities. But, you know, again, that was something that even me do, going through it, I was like, okay, but then I, a friend of mine who was a doctor, I think I told you, right, a friend of mine is like, yo, you know how serious that was? Right. And I was like, 
nah. He's like, bro, like that was a serious, 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 serious thing that y'all were, you know, potentially exposed to. You know, thankfully nothing, nothing came of it, but that was a serious situation. And so, you know, that was when that, when he gave me that perspective, I'm like, well, damn. And then now, like you said, with this with this Corona thing, it's like it's amplified and the mysteries around it, the end, the, the we don't see an end in sight for this thing. Right. Um, um, so it makes it that much more concerning. Right. And by the way, you know, uh, just for the record, that people still don't believe you that that was what you were alluding to. It, it cracks me up how like folks are always going to, uh, you know, always going to think there was a lot. I mean, I'm not saying there was not anything else there. You guys had right. team dynamics that were challenging. But I think like that, that itch was not scratched uh, when it comes to the. Yeah, well, that's, that's funny, because, um, again, that's that's to me, that's worse than anything else. Like if sure. guys are just arguing and bickering, but. Nah, man, there was a, you know, again, that exposure. um, And that was, again, for us, it was it was one of the weirdest game nights, game days of my life. Right. We 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 had to take freaking shots from the CDC that night. Right. Like I thought they were bringing us in to tell us somebody, one of our teammates had died or something because, you know, it just things didn't feel right. And then it's like, okay, well, you guys got to take these freaking uh, meningitis shots when right now, right. There's, and there's no, there's no yes or no. It's, you got to take it. Was it, I, I wonder, so that's happening. How deliberate was it for all of you to then move within the space of, of an Oracle arena or wherever you were, I forget at the time, but, but yeah. then keeping this thing quiet, like, you know, I mean, it had to be odd to come out, you know, come through a doorway knowing you just got a shot and then right. to act like everything is normal, like, hey, what's up, everybody? Let's talk about, you know, game number 67 or whatever it is. Right. The, the, the thing that was that was um, that was crazy was like we couldn't put the Band-Aids on. Because if we all had little. Ah, interesting. You know what I mean? Like People would know. Had, right. What the hell did you guys just go through? So it was like, you know, just cotton ball it, wait for the thing to go away. Because like it was, you know, you didn't want to have that. And again, to to a man, like we had a tight locker room. So the, the we was like, it's not going to get out. Everybody's, yeah, it's not going to get out. And it didn't get out. Right. You know, it was one of those things that, you know, we didn't let go crazy. And then, you know, we had, again, every NBA team has moments, right? You're around guys more, you know, you're taking more showers with these men than you are with your own wife. You know what I mean? Like, it's it you're closer than you know people realize and so you're gonna have these moments where you're just tired of hearing a guy's voice or you're tired of seeing a guy but we never had anything um that was gonna you know if there was anything that could have literally disrupted our season i thought it was that right right like that was a scare that like and i we started thinking about our families and our kids i'm like man this could be crazy if one of us has this like but thankfully, we got out of it clean. Right. No, crazy stuff. Hey, uh, I think the Warriors fans would be mad at me if I let you go without giving your quick two cents on on your old team. And because you're so close with a lot of those guys, I mentioned yeah. Coach Kerr earlier, who's, you know, he finds himself in a such a new coaching challenge where it's kind of development last year while you wait for the, the Hall of Famers to come back. Um, right. What do you what do you think? the future holds for that group. Clay's looking great on social media. Steph's ready right. to roll. You know, you know, the question of 
is the dynasty done? I know it's not going to be what it was because KD is KD, but but what do you think the, the future holds for them? Um, you know, I think they're going to be ready to roll. Uh, honestly, um, I haven't talked to, I haven't talked to, I've talked to Coach Kerr a bunch in the last whatever couple months, but I haven't talked to um, Clay. Um, I've checked on him a couple times, but I haven't really gotten a conversation with him to know where he is. Um, you know, I think that. I think they're going to be in a mode where, you know, they're crazy enough to feel like they've got something to prove. So I wouldn't be surprised if they literally come back and are just bum rush the league, like thr- uh, the, the kind of thrust that they hit the league with is similar to what they did when they first sort of started um, um, because they're wired that way. Like, you know, they are really wired, you know, to, 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 to be um, competitive and I mean, great guys, but literally like some of the most competitive people you ever be around and willing to work to win. You know what I mean? And so um, I think, you know, Wiggins will add uh, and he'll be more comfortable. I thought he played well when he came over, I think with a, with a healthy crew, um, you know, he fits in and some of the pressure that he was facing uh, in Minnesota, he's obviously not going to face, but this dude is a former number one pick. He's a super, super talented guy, and he's still fairly young. So he's still in a position to learn and absorb uh, knowledge. Um, and then, you know, they have they've got a top draft pick. So they could conceivably have something, um, you know, really tough, uh, really uh, more developed, I think, in terms of their roster and their team than people are expecting. And then they've got some good young players. Like, I really like Pascal. Um, think he's got the grittiness and the edgy. He's edgy enough to to really eke out a spot for himself in the league. So, um, you know, I don't I don't think that they're going to be as down as people think. I think that because of the way they're wired, you know, they're going to come out and try to and try to hit the league, land that first punch um, to establish themselves as being back back in the mix. I, I lied to you. I know I keep saying I'm going to get you out of here. One more thought that comes to mind, D West, and I think you probably would want to speak on this is is you've said some things on Twitter recently about, you know, you mentioned your views on the Knicks hiring Tom Thibodeau. And then, but within that context, and I think the more constructive part is like, what are your thoughts on, we, we've talked all about what you're doing with athletes, what you're doing to empower the voices of, of folks and, and help when it comes to racial equality in general. Right. Um, the league itself remains incredibly white when it comes to front offices. Um, right. You know, the diversity on the coaching side, ebbs and flows, uh, but certainly, you know, far more white coaches than black. And right. you have a diversity uh, kind of thing to address within the league that, you know, that hasn't really been part of the conversation in Orlando right. or otherwise. How do you see, you know, with that in its current state and, and where you hope it goes? Well, I, you know, I've said this before, right? The most diverse part about the league is the locker room. Right. And then beyond there, um, you know, you're, you're, <laughs> Like you said, there are ebbs and flows in coaching. There are ebbs and flows in, you know, the other roles around the organizations. They like the trainers and the medical staff. Um, and then we don't see much movement in terms of the executive level um, um, and the ownership level. Um, so there's a lot of room to go. And then even inside the inner workings of the league itself. Right. So um, there's a lot of work to be done. But, you know. My thing with the with the Knicks hire is, you know, I got I saw what uh, competing against 
um, the Timberwolves or whatever. Um, anybody that's honest with you, they saw the, the, the way that 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 situation had deteriorated and the optics of that situation, in my opinion, were like, oh, yeah, it's over over there. Like they're done. You know, we went to uh, China with that crew. Yeah. Played two games against them. Yeah. And it's like, yo, like, you know, uh, the guys weren't responding. I'm like, man, this is, this is preseason. We ain't even got to the, to the league and these guys aren't responding. So from that perspective and then looking at what the Knicks are, um, you know, that's a young team. They've got a lot of young, you know, who I feel young, talented guys there. Um, I just, I just wasn't a fan of bringing in that style for them. Um, um, and I thought that there, there are coaches, obviously there, uh, there are coaches that haven't gotten these types of opportunities. And the Knicks job, I think is a, it's a big job, regardless of the state of the franchise. It's, the still, state the of the roster, yeah. it's still the Knicks. Right. And, um, you know, I just I just thought that they could have done a lot. They have gone could have gone in a lot different direction and brought in somebody young who could probably relate to the players better. Um, because anybody who and you can ask guys, anybody who witnessed that mess at, at Minnesota will tell you that was. And it, it wasn't on the players. That's all I'll say. Right. Right. Who do you think, if you got to pick one or two names, just coaches, you know, current or on the outside looking in that, that deserve, you know, current assistance or uh, who deserve a, a shot at this? Who who do you I, think highly I, of? I, I was mad as hell that Patrick Ewan had to leave after being an assistant coach for all those years with Houston, um, learning under Van Gundy, playing for Van Gundy, right? Having the pedigree of playing for John Thompson clearly to be a, a coach. And, you know, I've heard this sentiment said amongst a lot of guys who are in that, you know, they just don't see the opportunity presenting itself in the NBA for them. So they got to go find it somewhere else. Right. And I just, I just don't, I just don't think that that's fair. Um, you know, I don't think that it's right. I mean, I got a bunch of texts from, from black coaches over the last couple of days saying, man, thank you for what you said on Twitter. And for a second, I'm like, what the hell did I say? And then I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I got it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I got you. You know, right. because, you know, you know, obviously some of those guys aren't in a position to articulate things that I can say, but I know that that sentiment exists, um, you know, amongst them and, you know, the opportunities to fail and then get another chance are few and far between for black coaches. And we know that, you know, um, um, if you're an executive or you've got to be damn near, you know, damn near perfect. Right. Like um, will Dell Demps get another shot? You know, that's the question. Right? Like Avery Johnson has a winning record as an NBA coach. Will he get another shot? Right. You know, Ty Lue hasn't gotten another shot. He's young. He's proven. Um, I mean, and everybody was, you know, the one thing that he did, I thought that many coaches hadn't done before him. I mean, he stood up to LeBron. We saw that on a, you know, in a public manner, in a, in a, in a, uh, a group huddle one time, a team huddle, right? So he hasn't gotten a shot. Mark Jackson hasn't gotten another shot. To be fair, I mean, Ty, I, I would argue Ty got, I mean, he got a shot with the Lakers. He didn't, he didn't like the terms and that's certainly his choice, but his choice, yeah, right, right, yeah. Right. But, but, he, I, but he would be the Lakers coach if, if he, you know, if he said yes to what, I mean, I don't remember the exact terms, but well, in general, were, I agree. Favorable for him. Right. Is, is what he felt. Well, and he had a championship under his belt and, and, he's, <laughs> and he's got LeBron's ear. So right, those right. are two, you know, if you're, if you're an NBA coach, those are two pretty damn good boxes to check. Right. So, right, right. so I get it. 
Hey, man, awesome stuff as always. Um, I'm going to have to do this again and, and have you back on to give me the latest when it comes to the Professional Collegiate League, too. We didn't even get into everything you got going there in the NCAA front. Um, right. you, you got your hands in a lot of cookie jars right now in a really good way. So always love talking to you. Glad to hear that everybody's doing great. And uh, and thank you for giving so much time to you, Wes. Appreciate you. Absolutely, Sam. You be good, man. All right, likewise. Thanks, brother.